are we doing? Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. It is so nice to see y'all's faces. Let's get the chat popping. Who is here for the first time? Drop a one in the chat. If it is not your first time, drop any other number in the chat. Good morning. Good morning. Drop your favorite number. <laughs> yes, Mary put the 69 in there. I used uh, 69 in a sentence to Nick Peterson the other day, working on something with him. I was like, imagine I'm a 69-year-old. He's like, why is it got to be 69? I'm like, why not? Why not? It is so nice to be back with all of you guys. And I believe, based on the material I have put together, that this might be one of the most useful mindset mastery classes we have ever had it is going to be a lot we're all smart here we're all able to handle a lot and of course the recording will exist for you to take it in again without further ado hey welcome to mindset mastery class with your professor me laura catella today we are going to talk about focus attentiveness and ADHD. I got my notes, which in putting this together, I realize that notes for me are a coping mechanism for ADHD. (laughs) I think that's why I am so anal about my notes and some of the how and why to that will make itself clear as we go through the class. The things we're going to talk about today, a little bit of my own story, being diagnosed with ADHD when I was 34, why I did not believe it at first, and then why I came to realize it made a lot of sense. And it's been hugely useful to me uh, getting this diagnosis and developing both coping strategies and realizing the ways it's useful and a superpower. Dave asks, how old am I? How rude. Kick him out. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you. I'm 37. I'm 37. (laughs) Amy, that's so true. Amy hung out with me and Eden the other day. And Eden said, I'm 47. And I said, kick her out. Get Eden out of here. (laughs) But yes, 37. We're going to talk about the way distractibility might be serving you as a coping mechanism for stress and trauma. Some amazing work from Dr. Gabor Mate on that topic. The fact that Whether you've been diagnosed with ADHD or not, whether you suspect you might have it, whether you sometimes feel overwhelmed with so many ideas, or if you feel distractible, like every shiny object in the sun distracts you, the truth of the matter that you are not lazy, you are not unmotivated, you are not grasping at straws, but there's other stuff, in fact, going on, and we'll talk about what that is and what you can try to do about it so that you end up being served by everything that's going on in that big, beautiful, irrepeatable, one-of-one brain, complex brain of yours. I just saw that we just went live in the Facebook group. Hey, Facebook. I'm going to continue with introducing this class. We're going to talk about how to thrive if you feel pulled in many directions, If you feel lost, if you're easily distracted, or if you have ADHD, who in here has been diagnosed with ADHD, by the way? You give me, um, uh, what's something fun we could put in the chat? Maybe like a a capital A, (laughs) the big A. We got one, we got a self-diagnosed. Yeah, and the point of this class, uh, is not to, it it absolutely does count if you're self-diagnosed, by the way, in my opinion which moves me nicely into some disclaimers. Uh, Shocking as it may be, I am not a doctor, (laughs) nor am I a scientist. So the point of this class is not to diagnose or to prescribe anyone. Everything I'm sharing is from my experience. I'm going to share the ways that me coming to understand the way my brain works have helped me, what I've done in my life, to get things done, even with distractibility and 
subpar, I hate using these sort of value judgments on it, but not typical executive function skills, which I'll share some of that story and some of the science as much as I understand it into how and why, why and how this happens to our brains and have happened to my brain. So as a child, uh, it never crossed my mind or anybody else's mind that I might have ADHD. And for reference, back when most of us were young, this was classified in the DSM, the Diagnostic Something Manual of uh, Psychiatric Stuff, as ADHD, H with the hyperactive, and ADD, just inattentiveness without the hyperactivity. These days, they lump it all into one category, and it's all called ADHD. They call it type 1 with the hyperactivity or type 2 inattentiveness. So I never uh, exhibited any hyperactivity. I always sat still in class. It was never a problem. And that is one reason why one might not be diagnosed with ADHD because that big physical tell is not always there. The hyperactivity is likened to a little motor. It's like you have a little motor and and it just doesn't turn off. I did well in school. I got good grades, all this stuff. And when you're a kid, the executive dysfunction, so stuff like not being a great long-term planner, not having amazing inhibition control. When you're a kid, those things don't really get noticed either because most of your executive function is controlled by your parents, right? And when you display impulsivity, you know, pretty normal for a kid to be more impulsive. Socially, I always felt like a bit of an alien. I never understood how other kids interacted with each other, didn't make sense to me. I didn't fit in. I just couldn't participate in their conversations. And I just sort of thought that was par for the course. I ended up being naturally excluded from cliques and groups of friends. Uh, But I never thought that ADHD might be a contributing factor in all that. I just kind of thought I was a weirdo, right? College came around and I realized I was a little bit different from all these other kids in college who read the books they were assigned, who went to the library, (laughs) not the day before a test. I'm like, what do you, (laughs) what's that building? And they would go, they they would just go with their own motivation to go, which I did not have. So I noticed that I was a little bit different in that way. But again, I just sort of figured that's the way it was. And I did figure I was a little bit lazy because if you see other people with the motivation and or discipline to do stuff and you don't have it, it's easy to feel lazy. Oh, I must be lazy. And my mom would call me lazy. So I'm like, yeah, I guess I guess I'm lazy. And we'll go on to discuss why you're not lazy. (laughs) After college. And I was officially moved out. I moved out the moment I could at 18, but I would still get bills and stuff to my house, mail, like paper mail. My father would call me to tell me about the bill and and then it would leave my brain. (laughs) If I had to go to a website to pay the bill, yeah, that was gone. That was never going to happen. And he became frustrated at me like, Laura, why can't you just do this thing? And it got to the point where I realized, I was like, my brain's just not built for that. This is what I would say. Like, please just help me. Please just do it, do it for me. What I didn't know is, for one, working memory, which you enter a room, you know why you're in that room, what you came to get. You open a new tab on your browser. You know what you're going to do and why. That all plays in your working memory, which is in your prefrontal cortex, front part of the brain, and one of the last parts of the brain to develop. Neuroimaging shows 
that folks with ADHD, their prefrontal cortex develops more slowly. And so while on average, most adults have this fully developed at around, I'm not sure the age of 30 or so, 25 to 30, in the ADHD brain, uh, it's not until 35 if it develops fully at all. And so that area of the prefrontal cortex deals with working memory, and it's where all of what we call executive function also comes from. So long-term planning, inhibition control, organization, uh, a good sense of time, how long it takes to complete tasks, a more realistic sense of that. That's all up in the prefrontal cortex, which in the ADHD brain, again, develops slower and has been shown to also just be smaller, a smaller part of the brain. So with that poor working memory, sometimes stuff goes in one ear and out of the other. Sometimes you start doing something and you don't finish it and it is literally out of your brain. Sometimes if you don't see things, you forget they are there, right? You ever put stuff in drawers or in a box in a closet? You come, you, what is that? <laughs> it's almost like you found a brand new thing. Object, permanence, out of sight, out of mind. So all of those are, are pretty big things for me, but I still didn't know. You know, I still didn't know. I started seeing a psychologist, uh, like 33, for other stuff, just to try to get better at life, you know, get some help. And after months of working with this guy, who I developed a lot of trust with, we had a good relationship. It's not always easy to find a good psychologist. I had tried a few. He broaches the possibility that I might have ADHD. I'm like, I'm like, no way. I'm like, do you see how well I can sit? <laughs> and have this conversation with you. You know how good my grades were in school, you know? <laughs> and then we start talking about the college examples of me not studying, not finishing a single book. I realize the difficulty I have still to this day, reading really long sentences. Anybody else have to do this? You read the same sentence over and over and over again. <laughs> Because by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you're like, what did I just read? Because <laughs> that, that focus is not there. You know, take it all in. I start thinking about my dad being frustrated with me and not, you know, catching up and paying whatever bills would come to the house. And I think about the social challenges that I had. Developing relationships, reaching out to people, following up with friends. All of that requires executive function. And I was never really good at that stuff. So he begins to convince me that I might have ADHD. And we did a diagnostic test. I can't remember, funnily enough, I can't remember all the details of it now. But I fell right in the range, which kind of pissed me off because normally I like doing really well on tests. But that fact that I like doing well on tests is how I was able to get it done, even with poor executive function when I was in school. Tests were fun to me, they were like a game to me. And for the ADHD brain, when you're interested in something, it's a lock, we're good, right? But when we're not, is when the challenges arise. And so to move it into the science of that a little bit, like why does this happen? So the most, uh, pr like productive and helpful way I've heard it described is for the ADHD brain, the neurotransmitter that carries dopamine to where it's supposed to go, we don't have as much of that. <laughs> and so the dopamine does not get there. And dopamine is the neurochemical of motivation and reward. We feel the reward of doing that task that we had to do, that's dopamine hitting the receptors. And so if our receptors are not getting that dopamine, we don't feel as much reward. And therefore, we just simply don't want to do it. Now, to my understanding, the more neurotypical brain might feel the same sense of, I don't want to do it. <laughs> 
but they get enough dopamine to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> that paired with the executive function skills to plan it, organize it, and get it done. And so the phrase that in reading stories from other folks with ADHD and stuff like this that I hear a lot is can't seem to, you know, I know I got to do this thing, but I can't seem to, I can't seem to, I can't seem to because of that lack of what feels like motivation because we're just not getting all of the dopamine. I went ahead of my notes. So um, I'm simply catching up here. One of the things I had brought up to my psychologist prior to him suggesting I have ADHD was I felt like I had anxiety. I'd say I get, I feel anxious in social situations. If I go to a store and I have a gift card, this was a real example. I had a golf galaxy gift card back when I was taking golf lessons and I had a gift card and I get in the car and I'm like, remember the gift card, remember the gift card, remember the gift card. And as soon as I park, I take the gift card out of my wallet and I keep it in my hand so that I don't forget it. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck? I have anxiety. I must have anxiety for this to be on my mind like this, you know? And then my psychologist suggests to me is that might've been and likely was a coping strategy for ADHD. Here's how you remember the gift card. Keep it in your hand. You can't forget it to cope with that poor working memory because in the moment with the other stimulation going on, they're checking out my products, blah, blah, blah. I'm glancing at my phone, whatever. The thought of the gift card out of the brain. Now, lack of focus, right, is a complicated thing because as many of you might experience, the flip side of the coin is the ability to hyper-focus. Hyper-focus. Who here has felt the sensation of hyper-focus before? You're in it. You're doing something. You're feeling good. You look at the clock. You're like, three hours gone. What the, where the hell did that go? That's that feeling of hyper-focus. And yes, Mary, such a good point. I can't even hear my husband when I'm in it. Exactly. Stefan said something to me the other day when I was hyper-focused on something. And I literally, it was like there was no sound. <laughs> like the hearing parts of the brain were were turned off. And he joked that if he said something like, Daniel Negreanu said what? Then that would snap you out of it. Daniel Negreanu is my fav- favorite poker player. <laughs> you know, Mary Bell did that. What? What did she say? Like, what? <laughs> to snap me out of it. Katie asks, is that part of ADHD too? Like the not hearing stuff? If, if so, to my understanding, yes. And the hyper, the hyper focus is yes. Because hyper focus comes from the same place that inattentiveness comes from this suboptimal ability to regulate your attention. And when we're in a state of hyper-focus on something that's useful, it's fantastic, right? It's great. Sometimes I can slip into hyper-focus on things that are not useful. (laughs) I've mentioned on this call sometimes when I'm formatting a web page, which I should not be doing at all, every single space, like that's poorly deployed hyperfocus, right? Another example, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at shopping bags for my next Diamond Day event. I love to do these like beautiful shopping bags. You take one, you get all the books we have uh, as gifts for members and all this stuff. I ended up compiling like 50 links <laughs> to different shopping bags. Like we don't need, I don't need that many to make a decision. <laughs> so I get stuck in an ill-serving hyper-focus loop. Of course, awareness is a hugely important first step, and I'm going to go through other coping strategies on that in just a moment. Yeah, it seems like a lot of you guys, like, with the listening. And yet, that's why part of the social relationships can be so hard, because your partner may feel unimportant or neglected, but that's not what it is. It's your brain so attached to whatever whatever it's attached to in that moment that literally other parts of it are not firing. The same place inattentiveness comes from. And so if you forget birthdays or if you forget somebody's name, 
that all comes from the attentiveness areas and the prefrontal cortex and the memory areas and the executive functioning areas of the brain. And so what interests us? You know, to a lot of people, playing poker might seem boring. You literally sit in a chair. I can sit in that chair for 14 hours. No fucking problem. (laughs) Not feel tired. Nothing. Because it's interesting to me and my brain gets so much of that craved dopamine out of it. I have so much motivation to continue playing. I feel such a sense of reward from playing that I sit there and I keep playing. TF asks, how do we fix this problem? I'm going to go into some, some examples. But one thing on the relationships front, communication. Communication. Hey, it seems like I'm sensing or I'm hearing that you're upset because I missed what you said, because I forgot something, because I didn't do something I said I would do. I want you to know that I love you. I value you. And sometimes my brain just forgets shit. (laughs) And really asking for that other person to meet you in that place of understanding and having them know that it is not personal about them. It's in no way an indication of their worth or their importance to you and that you you love them. Whatever the relationship is, is really important to you. And it's literally executive function stuff in the brain. And that's a nice contrast to see what the more neurotypical brain is like. Because my psychologist said to me, Laura, the default state is focus. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm like, I don't believe you. I don't know how that can be true. But if I think of the girls I went to high school with and how they took the time to do their hair and makeup every day, how they followed up on social relationships, how they got themselves out of the house and they did all these executive functioning tasks. They prepared their assignments. They started months in advance, right? And I'm like, that's that's so interesting that they do that. (laughs) And I don't. I just thought we were different, but I I didn't know why. And Katie says she feels bad. That's part of what happens too. (laughs) Because then we know that something is a little bit off. Why didn't I reach out to my dear friend on her birthday? What the hell is wrong with me? And then we feel guilt and shame. Like something is wrong with us. But if we can come at that with some empathy, some understanding, it's a good first step. Yeah? And then we could put some systems in place to help us. We can make accommodations for ourselves to help us. Longer term planning is of course an important executive function skill that's really challenging for the ADHD brain. Time, it's been said and I I do sort of feel this, like the ADHD brain has two times, now and not now. And funnily enough, at my talk at Alyssa Dillon's event, I stood up there to the whole crowd and I said, what time is it? And then they're looking at the, they're, look, they're doing this neurotypical brain stuff. They look at the phone huh, to see what time it is. Like, it's 2.30. I'm like, no, it's now. <laughs> I'm like, it's now. It's always now. And then I, I just read after the fact, the ADHD brain sees time is now and not now. And I'm like, oh, shit, I guess it's true. <laughs> So looking off into the future, again, because that's all prefrontal cortex stuff, is just a little bit more different. It's not natural. And things become when you're, you know, you got a long time horizon, you're planning something long term, you're doing something like writing a book, it becomes not new by definition. Novelty is really delicious to the ADHD brain. Because it gets more dopamine over there. (laughs) We feel it more when something is novel. So that's why, how many times, right? I'm going to start this project. I'm going to learn everything about espresso machines, right? (laughs) And then you're so into it. You're so into it. And then it's gone. Because that novelty factor wears off. 
And that's another contributing reason into why the longer term stuff is more challenging. And so that's something worth creating accommodations for, which again, I got a whole list of accommodations that have been really helpful to me that I'm going to share in just a little bit. And so the novelty factor being so important is part of like the good things, like the superpowers of ADHD, because when something feels new and novel, I'm diving in, right? And I'm getting to every single piece of it. The espresso machines and making espresso was no joke. I decided I was going to get an espresso machine. And in about four hours, I knew the whole history of espresso. I knew the pressure it had to be at. I don't remember the pressure now that left, but <laughs> I knew the pressure it, coffee had to be brewed at to count as espresso, <laughs> the temperature, the different types, the different regions, everything. Cause I'm like, we're going to learn everything about espresso now. And then we did. And that's a beautiful thing about my brain that I love. So as a coping strategy, and I really don't love that phrase. I really don't think up a better phrase than that, but engineering novelty when you can can be really helpful. Instead of studying for a test or writing the pieces you got to write in the same chair, in the same place, with the same walls, the same bookcase behind you, you could switch your environment. You can try writing upside down. Whatever injects a little bit of novelty into it can make it surprisingly more easy for you to do it because you get more dopamine out of it when there's more novelty there. Another uh, clue my psychologist gave me when he was convincing me that I might have ADHD was because he he knew Stefan. He had seen Stefan a bit as well. He's like, Stefan has ADHD. Stefan was diagnosed as a kid. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, birds of a feather. <laughs> You, if you notice a lot of your friends and you have quick conversations and you change the topic quickly and you like to gamble and drink together and do stuff that is known with high, high, high dopamine output, you know, (laughs) and at the time I was hanging out a lot with Stefan, of course, and his best friend, Cameron Weiss, and we would gamble and play blackjack until like three in the morning, Cameron Weiss. He's calmed down a lot since then. This was years ago, but he could be a wild blackjack player and it was exciting to watch. And so again, my therapist was like, yep, this this just your (laughs) birds of a feather doing ADHD things together that other folks would look at you guys and be like, the fuck are they doing? (laughs) And to us, it's like, how are you not doing this? You're not having fun. (laughs) This isn't fun for you. And so look around at the, at the company you keep, you know, look at the people you gravitate to. Because again, like those gals in high school who ran for student body and organized social events, I didn't flock to them and they didn't flock to me. Now, Dr. Gabor Mate, who I adore, if you don't follow him, he's amazing, suggests that ADHD might develop in childhood as a coping mechanism for stress and trauma, which to me makes some sense because if you're a kid and you're in a stressful or traumatic environment, what are those classical options we all know about, right? From adrenaline, fight or flight. But if a kid can't really do either of those things, what might they do? Their brain might disengage, right? Become distracted, literally tune things out, literally not hear it. And I don't know like the deep science of that, how it might change the neurochemistry of the brain. It might change the way different parts of the brain develop. But if you have learned, if your brain has learned, oh, I can just pay a lot of attention to this video game, right? And I don't feel as much pain and stress. That's the pathway that exists now. And so I really appreciated Dr. Gebor Mate's work on that. And so remember, all of this stuff does not mean you are lazy. It does not mean you are unmotivated. I'm a fucking motivated bitch. I am motivated. (laughs) 
It just means that sometimes, like, my brain has learned, like, mental flight, right? Distractibility is like mental flight. And so we, I can use that. There are a lot of gifts it gives. And I can set up buffers and accommodations for the ways it doesn't serve me. As an example, there are regions of the brain that are called the default mode network. And these are the parts of the brain that activate we are, when we are in a state of rest, awake but restful. It's the part that activates when you're daydreaming. Neuroimaging studies have shown that in the ADHD brain, that default mode network does not really turn off. Okay. Whereas in brains without ADHD, they get into a task and they're in an active state, their default mode network turns off. And so for this example, I like to call it the daydreaming brain. The daydreaming brain turns off. For the ADHD brain, probably not so much. <laughs> and that could be a beautiful pl germinating place for creativity, right? This is where two seemingly disconnected things could come together in your brain. So when you think, oh, that's kind of like this seemingly random thing, right? An idea nobody else might have. It could come from the fact that that daydreaming brain is still turned on and activated even when you're engaged in a task. Now, sometimes that's distractibility. That's sometimes you hear a noise and you totally like forget why you came into the room. <laughs> so there's good and bad, of course. But that could be one of the beautiful things about it. The wall of awful. I forget the doctor I learned this phrase from but I'll look it up and include it in the notes after the fact. In order to get over any sort of inertia and begin a task, everybody has a wall of awful, a little wall of awful, right? I don't want to do it. I'd rather just sit around and be lazy. I'd rather watch a YouTube video, whatever. The thing that helps you get through that wall of awful and get started is dopamine. <laughs> And so if we're not feeling a lot of dopamine, it becomes way more challenging to get through the wall of awful. And so now when I'm procrastinating, even just having the consciousness and calling it that, oh, I'm facing a wall of awful. It's way easier for me to get up and get started just by having the awareness of that versus I don't know why I don't want to do it. Can I try to figure it out? Can I motivate myself? Any of that? I just look at it as, oh, yep, this is my wall of awful. And it becomes easier to move forward. Plus, here's where it gets a little bit more interesting, in-depth, and potentially complicated. If you have tried <laughs> to do task before, and if you've failed, if you failed, if you've had a negative experience or a negative outcome, that is a new brick, a new hundred bricks in your wall of awful, which makes it even harder to overcome. You need even more dopamine to get through it. The way this is most apparent for me is in social relationships because the friends that I had back in the past, none of those friendships really ended that well. And from my point of view, like they all screwed me over. <laughs> I know it takes two to tango, but we all have our, our story and our perspective, right? And so, like, for example, my very, very, very best friend no-showed my wedding literally the day of. And she was, like, my only friend who was going to be there. So I had no friends at my wedding. Stefan had, like, 20. So that sucked, right? And so there is a brick, in my wall of awful. And so if somebody wants to be my friend or I want to be somebody else's friend, I got a bigger wall of awful. I'm like, ah, I don't want to reach out. So you got the wall of awful plus the executive functioning and planning that it takes to, to reach out, to schedule a date to hang out. All of that for me makes social relationships really challenging. And as I was reflecting on this, in bed last night, knowing that I was going to talk about it today, it became unsurprising 
that uh, no wonder I drank. I drank with all my friends. Drinking. If I was to meet like six months ago, if I was to meet any of you out in the world in real life, I would be drinking. We would meet at a bar. I would have drinks to get the dopamine out of it. So luckily that's changed, but it's still tricky to to figure out other stuff to do instead. (laughs) But baby steps, we're getting there. So you need the motivation to get over the wall of awful. How do we do some of that? There is no magic bullet, I don't think. (laughs) There is no super magic bullet or easy way to just turn on motivation. And I know a lot of people talk about fuck motivation, discipline is important. I'm coming at it from my ADHD brain. I'm like, if I can't even, (laughs) and you're talking to me about discipline, like I can't remember, you know, to pay a bill. If if I'm not checking regularly and it's not on auto pay, like I literally, like my brain does not care enough to do it. And you want to talk to me about discipline? Get the fuck out of here, discipline. (laughs) So I I don't really care for, for discipline at all. Hey, it could be useful. If it's useful to whoever it's useful for, that's fantastic. But miss me, miss me with all that discipline stuff. So how do I get up and start doing the thing when I'm facing a wall of awful? That's one of the reasons I love the shot clock exercise, right? You put it on paper, you get it there. I really like the Mel Robbins approach where she teaches you countdown, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, do it. Five, four, three, two, one, go. Here's the power up to that that I haven't heard Mel say. Sometimes you got to do it more than once. <laughs> Sometimes I say five, four, three, two, one, go. I don't go. You know what? So I say it again. Five, four, three, two, one, go. You'll do it eventually because you're not going to sit there for hours telling yourself five, four, three, two, one. Your brain's going to have to resolve that somehow. <laughs> Either you give it up entirely or you take the action. So sometimes you have to do five, four, three, two, one a few times, but then it works. Then I start doing stuff. I also use five, four, three, two, one to get me out of maladaptive hyperfocus. So when I got my 51st link to an option for shopping bags, I'm like, Laura, I know what you're doing. I'm like, okay, five, four, three, two, one, stop. Get out of there. And sometimes I got to tell it to myself a few times, but eventually it works. So those are a few really simple coping strategies for starting to climb over the wall of awful. We talked about the importance of novelty. And so adding some novelty onto the situation, setting a timer does this twofold because what's also hugely motivating to the ADHD brain is urgency. This is why, I mean, give us, give us a deadline. We'll get it done by the deadline. We'll start that day, (laughs) but we'll get it done because that's when we feel enough dopamine to go ahead and climb over the wall of awful. There is enough urgency. So how can you create urgency? My house was a mess the other day. And normally like my brain filters that out and I don't care so much, but it, it it was, it was bugging me, you know, just didn't feel nice to be in. And So I said to, I said in my little Google home display thing, I'm like, set a timer for five minutes. And I just start cleaning everything I can in five minutes. I got a lot done. The house looked much cleaner. I just threw that timer on and got started. It was novelty. I had never done that before. It's something I've heard. You've all heard that before, right? Throw on a timer, five minutes, do the thing, get something done, make your bed, whatever. I actually went ahead and did it and it worked. (laughs) Look at that. But it was novelty my first time doing it and urgency. And what was fun was Eden, who I wonder about with ADHD, if there's a genetic component, she's got a little motor sometimes, I tell you. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a little motor. She'll, She'll get up onto the ottoman and just jump herself backwards onto the couch and then do it again and again and again. And I'm like, mm, that lo- is that a little motor? I don't know. You know, I'm not a professional to diagnose that. We'll see. She's very young. She's five. Or if we're in bed and I'm reading her a book, she'd be like this with her arms. <laughs> so a patty cake in the air. <laughs> I'm, like, mm. I'm like, that might be a little motor. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> 
but she dove right into it too. She was like, mommy, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm cleaning as much as I can in five minutes. Like, okay. She brought a spoon into the spoon drawer. It was awesome. She helped too. So throw on that timer and go off, go for it. Five minute timer to clean five minute timer for some breathing, doing some exercise, some stretching gives you that novelty and that urgency. And if we're doing five, four, three, two, one to stop maladaptive hyper-focus or to stop procrastination, yes, Katie, the Pomodoro technique. I have heard so many ADHDers rave about the Pomodoro technique. That's like 25 minutes on, five minute off. Hell yes, Whitney, five minute timer for gratitude or journaling. And here's another awesome thing that's going to tie into an accommodation that I love, visual cues. So in, to, to power it up from using the timer on your phone, if you had a manual timer on your desk in the place wherever you write your gratitude or your journaling, just seeing that timer is going to give you the visual cue. Oh, yeah, let me bang that out. My timer's there. Let me put it to five minutes and let me do the thing versus just doing it on your phone because there's more mental steps. You got to remember, <laughs> you got to open the app on your phone, all that versus visual cue, turn it on, go. And so the larger point of, of that is that my psychologist taught me and I want everybody to absorb this no matter what, even if you're the most focused person in the world, even if you have rock star executive functioning, <laughs> my psychologist taught me that I am worth any and every accommodation. It is worth it. And so as an example, I have like the Google Home display. It's like a screen. You could talk to it and stuff. And I would tell him now that we're get really getting into the nitty gritty with this ADHD stuff. Oh, yeah, I would have it. Give me a recipe to cook. Walk to the kitchen. I remember like one ingredient by the time I get there. And if we're talking like... Is it a teaspoon or a tablespoon or a half a tablespoon? I'm not going to remember that shit. That's working memory. <laughs> no way. And so my psychologist says to me, you should get another display for your kitchen. <laughs> like every accommodation is worth it. Make it as easy as you possibly can. So instead of saying, I don't want to spend the 10 bucks on a timer because I got a timer on my phone. And I should be able to do it. I should be able to do it with just the timer on my phone. Why are you fighting? Stop that bullshit. You're worth every accommodation you can possibly get. Another accommodation that does not cost anything. If you are in a hyper-focused state, here's the other like thing to be careful about with hyper-focus. You don't want to get burned out, right? You don't want to spend... 12 hours a day for four days doing something that you love and that you're so focused on by the fifth day you're depleted and you're done. And so as best as you can, and this is a dance, this is a dance because we also want to like squeeze the lemon while it's juicy, right? And there's no hard and fast rule, but there is diminishing returns, right? Your work at the 11th hour, probably not as good as the work at your first and second. And so what I like to do now in that situation is I'll leave myself breadcrumbs. When I feel like, ooh, I'm writing, I can't stop, I can't stop, but I know I should, my eyes are droopy, I'm tired, like whatever. I'll do a few quick sentences on what I was gonna do next. Here's what I'm gonna talk about next. Here's what I was gonna prepare next, whatever. Leave yourself breadcrumbs so that you can get back to the task, hopefully with as much juice as you possibly can versus stopping, however, who's experienced this like as a writer or creator of content, right? You stop wherever and then you come back and you're like, what was I doing? <laughs> what was the point of this, right? So leave yourself some breadcrumbs to try to mitigate that. Is this, has this been useful so far? Sound off, dopamine me. <laughs> I get huge dopamine from you guys letting me know that it is useful. 
Dopamine me more, please. <laughs> Thank you. Good. I'm so glad that it's useful. And I do, I highly encourage everybody to watch this back and pick out the accommodations that are useful to you and set it up as much as possible for them to become more effortless. And again, the visual cues. So the timer is one visual cue. If you, this one uh, incorporates a lot, but if you can set up a space in your house that's just for writing, let's say, or that's just for writing creatively, or just for writing your own stuff, right? So there's distinction between the stuff you create for you and the stuff you create for your clients. You set up a space that's just for that, it becomes a visual cue. And there's novelty to it until there's not. <laughs> then you change it, move it somewhere else, make it novel again. But now you've set up the visual cue of, oh yeah, I ought to, I ought to sit there and do some writing for myself. Clocks. <laughs> Clocks are helpful visual cues, right? And a watch is good. Watch is great. Don't just rely on the phone because you got to pick it up and look at it. But have clocks around so you can get a better sense of what this thing called time is and, and how it works. <laughs> so we talked about how with the, uh, the regions of the brain called the default mode network, those staying on and those staying activated is a cool place where creativity can come from and how it's nice that the ADHD brain seems to have those activated all of the time. Another thing I've realized about my brain is I got to understand stuff at a fundamental level. And I think that's part of what makes me a really good teacher because for me to absorb it, for it to stick, you know, I could get comp complicated stuff. Okay. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but for it to stick, I got to break it down to its fundamentals and then it sticks and then it's not leaving. And then I'm able to communicate it in that way to other people. So that's part of one of the gifts that my ADHD brain has given me. And so the meta point of that is open up the container for yourself, cast some awareness, no matter what type of brain you have, huh? what are the gifts your brain gives you? Because Really long sentences huh, that I got to read 10 times. <laughs> what my brain is doing is, how do I say this in four words? <laughs> like, how can this point be made in four words so that I can understand it? And then I'm able to turn around and communicate it that way to other people. So that's one of like, you know, I just want everybody to open up the loop of what are the gifts your unique, beautiful brain gives you? Katie says we need an ADHD support group to remind each other of these techniques. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> this is why I'm telling you guys to watch it again. Because <laughs> literally in an hour from now, you're going to be like, what did Laura say? <laughs> what was that again? <laughs> Working memory. But there's something about when something gets broken down so simply that it doesn't leave. Oh, I love that. I geek out over that. That's what I hope to do every week. At least a few, at least a few times every week. So yes, watch it again. Watch it again. Lists. I mean, who, who writes a lot of lists? Who's a list writer? Yeah. <laughs> of course, that's productive no matter who you are. But I find that the ADHD mind writes a lot of lists. It's a coping strategy. It keeps things alive. And highly useful and sometimes what i suggest is you make a list of a list because who ends up with a list with 20 things on it i got one on the on the <laughs> chrome window right behind my notes i got a list with like 30 things on it <laughs> i've had it for months <laughs> it's too many things and so i made a list of the list okay <laughs> what are the top four things on that list bring it down again make it the top one thing and put the list on the computer screen is great, but if you could put it other places, visual cues, visual cues. A few other accommodations that have helped me over the past couple years here. Learning which sensory stuff tends to distract me the most. 
Let me tell you something else my psychologist taught me as well. Uh, attentiveness is a resource, right? Focus and attention is a resource. You wake up every day with however much you have in the gas tank of attentiveness. And with ADHD, you wake up with less than the normal folks. And so every time you switch tracks, that takes like a burst of energy, a burst of attentiveness and focusness. And so you may end up feeling more depleted at the end of the day if you switch tracks too many times. Yet, this is where it really could fuck you up. No track is really like fulfilling you enough. And so you're switching around so much. Uh, but that's when you feel frazzled and spun out and like you've lost all control. Sometimes it's better to like just deep breathe for a minute or something instead of getting yourself to that state. And that's one of the reasons why it's useful to come to an understanding of yourself and what sensory stuff stands to distract you the most. This is also why anybody get irritable, somebody interrupts them. They're writing. <laughs> Somebody comes into the room. <sighs> you get a little mad, irritated. I do. Stefan does. Big time. You interrupt that man while he's writing. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> I would advise you not to do that. Highly, highly irritable. Because taking him off the track just took so much of that precious dopamine away from him. And it literally manifests as irritability. And I empathize, birds of a feather, we get it. So knowing, is it sounds, right? You hear a bird chirp, right? And you're like, ooh, bird. <laughs> is it touch, a clothing tag, you know? If a clothing tag is itching you, can you not? No, does it just keep driving you nuts until the tag is gone? It's good to be aware of that stuff until you can buffer against it as much as possible. Visual, right? Somebody walks by a bush, flops in the wind outside. Like, what was that? For Stefan, it's all of them. So I laugh at him about that. <laughs> it's, all, it's all of the above for him. You smell something, right? Totally taken out of the moment because you smell something. For me, it's a lot of auditory and visual. <laughs> Stefan will just say stuff like, I'm really sensitive to sounds. I'm really sensitive to smells. <laughs> really sensitive to seeing stuff. <laughs> really sensitive to touch. And then I laugh at him. And I don't know. I want to research more on uh, autism as well. I don't think he'll get mad at me for saying this. But Stefan asked me the other day. He's like, you don't think I have autism, do you? I'm like, I definitely think you have autism. <laughs> we start laughing. I'm like, you not knowing that <laughs> just, just proves it. <laughs> We could laugh about it because we, you know, the whole birds of a feather thing. So just open that container for yourself. Oh, what if any sensory stuff tends to distract me? And how can I create a good, novel, pleasant environment? Yeah, Katie, in my cursory understanding, autism and ADHD are highly related and they tend to be co-diagnosed, but they're also really big differences between the two. I just don't, you know, I'm not nearly an expert enough to dive more into that. But you'll also find that like, they call all these things neuro, neurodivergent. Neurodivergent folks tend to hang out together. <laughs> you know, the way we do things just makes more sense to us. And, you know, if people forget my birthday, I don't care. Well, unless it's like my husband or my mom, I don't care. Mm, you guys forget my birthday. doesn't bother me, you know, because I understand it. Whereas somebody else, right, who has a journal, which puts everybody's birthday on a calendar. You know how much executive functioning that takes? <laughs> she might be upset if you forget her birthday. She cares so much. So I guess that was an aside, right? Points of performance is one of my favorite huh, accountabilities. I mean, um, accommodations. One of my favorite accommodations that I have learned about. So 
And this blends into the environment too, setting up a as productive as you can environment. As best as you possibly can. Have everything you need to complete a task all next to each other. <laughs> all right in the area of a task. This is one of those things that I started doing naturally just because I thought it made sense. And my psychologist is like, no, that was a coping strategy for your ADHD. Like I got the coffee machine. So the mugs have to go in the cabinet right above the coffee machine, right? I go to my mom's house, coffee machine there, mugs all the way over there. I'm like, you're just inefficient. (laughs) But I suppose for the more neurotypical brain, it doesn't drive them as mad as it drives me. Because if I'm walking across the room to get a mug, you know, there's a risk, dog, right? Social media message, anything can come up (laughs) that could take me off track for a little bit. And then, you know, the Keurig has sent all the water down into the water collection tray, (laughs) right? And not in a cup. Another aside, my psychologist told me that there was a study, I want to look up the, the details to it, where they, like the scientists, observed they had neurotypical people make a sandwich in like a test kitchen, and they had ADHD people make a sandwich in the same kitchen. He's like, you could tell the difference. <laughs> He's like, they were so, the way they did it was so different. <laughs> ADHD, they left the fridge open, which I do. If I'm grabbing something out of the fridge and then I'm running to get a cup, that fridge stays open. You don't do that. <laughs> it's weird to know of brains that are not here. You would close the fridge. <laughs> That's like executive functioning. Close the fridge. Anyway, yes, points of performance, zones, set everything up to complete a task all right there, nicely nestled together, makes it much easier to complete the task once you start it. Designate, set that five minute, 10 minute timer for planning time. Sometimes it doesn't feel like you're doing anything when you're planning, right? Like I would rather dive in and write something or film something versus sit and plan out the next month or two of, well, what am I even going to talk about and why? (laughs) But as I say it out loud, we all understand, yeah, that planning shit is really important. And when you plan, the more contingencies you can uh, like bring in, the more if then you can include, the better. If I get stuck here, I'll do this. If this takes longer, I'll do this. And if things take a little bit longer than you expect, that's always okay. Because another thing, the ADHD brain, all brains, but from my understanding, what the ADHD brain will do more often is the whole overpromise and underdeliver. It's not because we're jerks. It's because we really think, no, yeah, I'm going to get it done tomorrow. Yeah, no, all of it. And I'm going to write you two extra ads. Uh-huh. And I'm going to do a social media audit uh, for you. Yeah, no, tomorrow, all of it. I'm going to do it. We really think uh, that we can do it. And then, you know, hey, sometimes we pull it off and that's great. And that just, you know, keeps convincing us that we could always do that. But then the situations arise where we can't. Something else comes up. The wall of awful is too big. We don't have any strategies to start to climb it. We feel guilt and shame over missing the deadline or falling short of what we said we would do. And that's a whole spiral potential, right? Maybe you ghost somebody. Maybe like a family member gets sick, you know, (laughs) all that because of that tendency to really believe that we can do a whole bunch of stuff. So buy yourself more time. Buy yourself a little bit more time. Chunk stuff out and keep the accountability ongoing. So there's this awesome YouTuber uh, who I've learned some coping strategies from. My therapist recommended her to me, How to ADHD. And she was writing a book. And she was like, man, it was hard to write a book because <laughs> like she has serious ADHD. And normally the way accountability works with her editor is, okay, I'll send you the first draft of the book, the whole damn book. 
She's like, no, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> She's like, I need to deliver you something every week. That ongoing. So can you set up ongoing accountability? Hey, I want to send you a draft. And I don't love doing that with your clients, you know, because you're the professional. You could set that up with a friend, right? I'm going to send you a draft this day, second draft this day, et cetera, et cetera. Like checkpoints along the way. Accountability is always so, so, so huge. Even accountability for planning. Hey, I'm going to send you what I planned. Of course, you could get that from a coach. You can also just get it from having another human body around, right? You go to a cafe or a co-working space with another human being. What happens? You get more done. You just have another human being looking at you. Creates more urgency. The urgency is so important. Helps us get over the wall of awful. And it helps social connection too. So it's a win-win. We love that. Investing in yourself, right? Well, I got to do this shit. I paid three grand for it. (laughs) I got to do it. (laughs) Just makes you more accountable. Puts more pressure, urgency pressure on you in a good way. So when can you invest in yourself to get things done? And of course, that timer, not just the one on your phone, the physical cue. I love the physical cue of a real timer. So I want to recap that things that help us move out of the procrastination that sometimes often accompanies ADHD novelty, right? This is also why sidebar, (laughs) like we get into stuff, new stuff, right? We're always getting into new stuff, you know? And that could be a beautiful thing. That's why how we learn a lot, right? And we can connect these disparate things together. It's all beautiful. We love novelty. So where can you engineer novelty towards the shit that you have to do, right? Your environment. I'm really productive at a coffee shop. I don't know why, but I just am. So can I go to the coffee shop? Where are you more productive? Outside? Another thing about environment is you can pair unpleasant tasks with a pleasant environment. I don't want to look at my books. I don't want to categorize every transaction on my credit card, right? But if I go outside, I lay in a lounge chair, I have my laptop with me, I set a timer, I could get it done. So where can you pair the unpleasant tasks? Let me catch, if I'd have known this in my mid-20s, you know, could have gone outside, my laptop and a timer and paid all those bills. And these were literally, this This is what would drive my dad nuts. These were like $11, like random bills. And he's like, Laura, what the fuck? Why can't you just, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, you tell me about it. I hang up the phone and it is gone. The website I got to go to, it's just gone. I'm like, please just do it for me. Like, I'll PayPal you. <laughs> like, just please. And you do want to outsource as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Like, that's an accommodation that is worth it. Outsource as much as you can. Of course, ultimately, you cannot outsource your push-ups, right? Eh? Fuck. Eh? I wish you could. Eh? So can you do your push-ups outside in the sun? That helps me work out. Working out outside helps a lot. So the novelty, the environment, the urgency. How can we manufacture some urgency in a way that serves us? And remember, these, this, is, this is ongoing shit. This is for life. So having the timer as your visual cue may work really, really well for a while. It becomes less novel. You get used to tuning it out, right? And then you got to switch it up. Try something else. But how can you engineer some urgency here and there and that other human or a coach, accountability. Your personal interests, of course. Personal interests are beautiful, amazing. Thank God for them. We love them. So where can we, thank you, Whitney. I love you so much as always. And I'm wrapping up too. You're not going to miss too much. Personal interest. How can we roll that in as much as possible? In addition to pairing 
unpleasant tasks with pleasant environments, look for opportunities to pair unpleasant tasks with pleasant tasks. So my closet, it looks beautiful. I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen pictures of it. It's getting too full. Like I've just, I've just carried shit around since who knows, probably some of those early 20 days. Like I just got dresses in there. I know I'm never, ever, ever going to wear again. Nobody else. I can't outsource it. Cause you know, <laughs> somebody might take something I don't want them to take. And so I, I have to do it. I have to, to clear it out. And so I've been doing it. How I put on a YouTube video while I do it, that I wanted to watch anyway. So I'm not just laying down watching the YouTube video. I'm getting this unpleasant task done with the pleasant task of a little YouTube video to accompany me. We talked about notes, of course. Don't be afraid to make notes of notes. And one thing that has helped my life dramatically, and I think I started doing this before I knew, before I was diagnosed with ADHD, even in conversations with people, I'll make a note. If they say something like amazing or brilliant or something I want to ask about later, I'll just I slip my phone out. And this is like, this is fun at networking events too. And it, like the other person ego, ego gets stoked. It's not fabricated. I'm, gen, I'm gen, genuinely doing it. But they, they're like, yeah, take a note. And I'm like, I'm just going to take a quick note on what you said. Is that okay? And they're like, yeah, go ahead. And then I just take a note of it so that it's saved and I'm not repeating it in my head over and over and over again to try to stick it in my longer term memory, which sometimes works, often doesn't. So there's no wrong time to take a note. Somebody wants to take a note when I'm talking to them, please, you know how much I'm gonna love that? Dopamine, (laughs) that gives me dopamine. And realize that all of these accommodations are worth it for you. You are worth every single one and every other one you go on to dream up. Helps you get shit done. Helps you be happier. That wraps this up. I want you guys to hype up this class on social media. (laughs) I give all of this for free from my heart in the deepest of hopes that it is useful. And I want other people to see it and feel FOMO and potentially come. And it'll give me a lot of dopamine reward. (laughs) This is the only reward I ask from you guys. And while it is fresh, before you forget to do it, let's do it (laughs) right after. If you got value of it, I don't want you to lie, of course. I appreciate y'all so, so much. It is a pleasure to be back. And there's going to be more dope stuff for you next week. And this recording, I know. Yes, I know how important the recording is. You'll have that available too. Go hype me up. Hype me up. It feels weird to ask, but I'm, I'm pushing. I'm doing it anyway. Hype me up. Hype me up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you next week.